We want to just show you a little video of the work of the Evangelical Alliance and all the good work that they do. And then Gavin's just going to come straight up and minister uh, to us and into us. Just watch the screen just for a moment. We are the Evangelical Alliance. We want everyone in the UK to have the opportunity to know Jesus. We are an alliance of evangelicals. Of churches and charities. Entrepreneurs. Grandmas. Colleagues. Neighbours. Friends. Loving God. Serving each other. Declaring with one voice, Jesus is our King. We are an alliance of evangelicals. Cheering each other on as we seek to be salt and light in the world. You'll find us everywhere. In places of influence. And where people are hurting the most. In parliament, in government. Speaking out on issues that matter the most. In a changing and hurting world. We're transforming communities. Changing lives. With the amazingly good news of Jesus. We're an alliance of evangelicals. Собрание различных племен и народов. We pray, speak, listen and share. Through challenging times and choppy waters. We stand together and serve each other. We are the Evangelical Alliance. Together, we're making Jesus known. Good morning. It's so great to be with you. Let me take this opportunity just to say as well how wonderful it is to see my friends Mark and Kathy in situ. You've got really good pastors here. I've known them for years. They're really fabulous. Take care of them. And if you've forgotten to do so, thank the Lord for bringing them to you. Church leadership is challenging, it's difficult, but it's a great privilege. You've got two of the good ones here. Just look after them, will you? I don't know about you, but I find it really irritating, annoying, somewhat crass and opportunistic when people use their sermons to advertise the ministry they're involved in. So I didn't think I'd do that. I thought instead I would just tell you all about the EA for three minutes and then I can get on with a sermon. Is that all right? Brilliant. Um, The Evangelical Alliance was started in 1846 with two aims. They remain our two aims today. Therefore, we're either incredibly focused, as I like to think, or we're bad at our job. No, we're focused. First aim, unite the church in reaching the lost in the UK. Second aim, give the church a clear and effective voice into every layer of society. Now, that evangelical word, it's not redundant, but it needs redeeming a little. Basically, it means four things. Firstly, we believe that the Bible is the inspired word of God. Stop changing scripture to baptise your culture and start changing your culture with the truth and the pages of the Word of God. Secondly, we believe the death and resurrection of Jesus is the single most important thing in human history. Thirdly, we believe in the need for conversion. You don't come to faith by osmosis. You get on your knees and you meet your Saviour. And fourthly, we believe in being active in the world, making the world more like the kingdom. 
That's why evangelicals have been involved historically in all kinds of things, like the provision of education first, or in the last 30 years have come up with and delivered food banks, street pastors, Christians Against Poverty. And the Evangelical Alliance is the oldest and largest organization that seeks to represent the estimated one and a half million evangelicals in this country. We're membership-based, made up of 3,000 church members like this one, 500 organizational members, and about 18,000 individual members. And you know what? That means we can come together to speak together, act together, and be one voice. We will speak up on issues that others just won't. Why? Because it's the right thing to do. We will stand up and speak up. And there are many things we're speaking in with the government at the moment, but we don't tend to talk about them in the middle because that can jeopardise the outcome. But I can tell you historical ones. My favourite thing in my time at the EA was when the government said they wanted to offset all youth work and Sunday schools. Do you remember that? If you think about it, that's profoundly ridiculous as a concept. For public regulation of private religion, firstly, do you live in North Korea? And secondly, for a faith illiterate system to assess whether the church is doing its job, it's just bonkers. And so we went into the corridors of power and said, on behalf of our membership, this is ludicrous, you can't do this, it's an infringement on religious liberty, and at least for now it's been kicked into the long grass. Why? Because we spoke as one. And we will continue to speak up and speak out in every layer of society on behalf of the church. We're the only organisation, really, that did much with the government on conversion therapy in the last year. We think abusive practices are outrageous, but we also think the church has to be free to be the church. And one of the challenges in front of us right now, if I'm honest, is for the, for the first time in a while, we may be doing some of our advocacy work, not just with the government and stuff, but also with the church. Because, frankly, the church cannot start to bless and endorse that which God does not bless and endorse. So we will speak up and speak out and act up on behalf of the church. Now, now friends, I'll just unashamedly ask you, if you're not a personal member of the Evangelical Alliance, would you become one today? Personal membership is the real key in this season. There's a growing scepticism in the corridors of power to institutions. We need to be able to say that we represent a certain amount of people. We're only at 18,000. My vision is 50,000. That puts us at the same level of membership as the Liberal Democrats. Why does that matter? We're not a political party, but it means a new Prime Minister rings me, not the other way around. We need to be in a position where we have enough people standing with us that our significance and our voice is loud enough. And you know what? It costs a cup of coffee a month to be a member. It's £3 a month to be a member, as an individual or as a couple. If you're married, don't even check with your spouse. Just sign up as two, because it counts as two when we represent. But would you today, would you do me a massive favour and stand with us? Because we have got to stand together if we want to see the United Kingdom won and changed for Jesus. And you know what? If you do, I'm going to give you a present. Why? I like you. Why else? Let me be honest. I'm giving at least the next decade of my life to uniting people in reaching the lost and to speaking up on behalf of the church. Frankly, I'll give you whatever it takes to stand with us if you need a kidney simulator. In this box, which we'd love to give you at the back, there's three little gifts. Firstly, Unleashed, my wife and Anne's, Anne and I's last book. What does it look like to be like the Acts Church today? Love to give you that. Secondly, one of our latest resources, a new version of Speak Up that we've done with the Lawyers Christian Fellowship. What this is, is a reminder of your legal freedoms to share the gospel in the UK. Do you know you've got more freedom to share the gospel in the UK than almost any nation on earth? Here's the thing though, use those freedoms or your children and your children's children won't have those freedoms. And friends, therefore, it's not the law that's stopping us sharing our faith. Maybe we're just chickens. 
And finally in my box, if this doesn't swing the deal, honestly, I'm out of ideas. I know this would swing the deal for so many of you. I've got an EA key ring, bear with me. This bit on the top is a fake detachable quid with our logo on. In our increasingly cashless society, when you need a supermarket trolley, you'll be so grateful you joined the Evangelical Alliance. <laughs> when you need a locker at the gym, happy days. All I ask is, would you do one thing with me and for me each time you use it? Every time I use mine, I pray three things. I pray that the church would be united. I pray that the voice of the church would be effectively heard at every layer of society. And I pray that together we might make Jesus known. Let's pray, shall we? Lord, I pray you would forgive me for overselling in your house. But Lord, you know how pure the motive is. And you know how desperate we are to see this nation one for you. Lord, I pray those three things. I pray that your church would be united. Lord, I pray that the voice of your church would be heard effectively. And I pray that together we'd make you known. And Lord, as we turn to your word now, whether it's through me or in spite of me, would you speak to us, we pray. I pray with the fun as well, Lord. Why would your family gather and not have a good time together? So as I share with my friends over the next 19 or 20 hours or so, Lord, we just invite you to speak to us. Amen. If you've got a Bible, would you turn it on? We're going to John 20. If you've got a paper one like me, that's okay. We're going to read a few verses from the empty tomb, starting at verse 11. Now Mary stood outside the tomb crying. As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb and saw two angels in white, seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. They asked a woman, why are you crying? They've taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they've put him. At this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not realize it was Jesus. He asked a woman, why are you crying? Who is it you're looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, she said, sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've put him and I'll get him. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned toward him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said, do not hold on to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them, I am ascending to my father and your father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news, I have seen the Lord. And she told them that he had said these things to her. Then down to verse 26, a week later his disciples were in the house again and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here, see my hands. Reach out your hand and put it in my side. Stop doubting and believe. Thomas said to him, my Lord and my God. Then Jesus told him, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. You know, what a season we've been through, friends, and what a season we're going to go through next. I do think, though, as the church, we need to stop talking about pre- and post-pandemic. I think we're in danger of sounding like old people talking about the war. You know, it's about time we move forward and actually accepted what's in front of us now. But one takeaway from me from the pandemic is this. Many of my Christian friends are a bit sleepier in their walk with Jesus than they were before the pandemic. Yet I do not have a non-Christian friend who's not more open to my Jesus than he was before the pandemic. I don't have a single friend who's not, who's not more open. It feels like perhaps this season has been hard for the saved, but the start of a spiritual awakening for the lost. And I don't want us to miss it. 
That's why I really think we need a brave church in this season. I was at the last new wine before the pandemic and uh, the preacher at the front was talking about if you feel like God's calling you to be distinct within culture, come forward, we want to pray for you. Now I don't often respond to talks, I'm usually giving them and it's the height of preaching arrogance to be the first person to respond to your own message. But on this occasion I went to the front of the tent and I'm stood there at the front and I feel the Lord say to me, you need to be braver in this next season. And forgive me, my sinful nature looked around this tent of about 6,000 people and I said to the Lord, I'm doing all right compared to loads of these. And I felt the Lord say, do not look sideways, look upwards, you need to be braver. And I stood there at the front of that tent and I did something I don't do very often. I started to cry. And not just a little bit, really cry. Why? Because it's hard to be brave. We all want to be loved. We don't have to be distinct or different. We want to be loved and accepted. And you know, brave people are not born. You're given a chance to be brave. Bravest person in scripture for me is Esther. When she goes to see the king, she risks the most radical of haircuts just for turning up. She could have had her head chopped off. And in that moment, I I wept. And then I told my wife, Anne, I didn't tell another soul. And it's the last night of school holidays. We're praying with our kids. When we pray with our kids, we always leave a time for silence at the end for God to speak. Because prayer's not a monologue, it's a conversation. And after a few minutes, my daughter, Amelie, says, Dad, this is proper weird. It's proper weird, but Jesus wants you to be braver. I'm like, all right, I get the message. Within a few months, I took over leading the Evangelical Alliance, which is an absolute privilege, but is also sometimes as much fun as it sounds. And here's the thing, friends. I don't think it's a message just for me. I think we're called in this season to be a brave church. But alongside that, as I stepped into EA, I felt it's not just bravery. We also need to be kinder than we've ever been. So in this next decade, we need to be outrageously brave, but also incredibly kind. And not the world's definition of kindness. Have you noticed how the world's stolen that word? Kindness means never correcting anything, never challenging anything, never questioning anything. Frankly, kindness seems to mean not actually being a very good friend. If you are a kind parent by the world's definition, your children have no hands. Because when they put their hand in the fire, it's unkind to tell them they might burn themselves. Kindness means treating everyone as someone made in the image of the living God and therefore treating them with the integrity and the dignity they require. We need to be brave, but we need to be kind. You know, personally, I long and believe for a major move of God in the United Kingdom. I believe for a move of God that could change this island inside out, upside down and back to front so it'd never be the same again. But I also know that there's a price tag attached to that. And we get so excited about the stories around the world of all kinds of revivals. We long for them here. But I felt challenged by the Lord recently. I felt the Lord saying to me that the UK church wants Iranian results with UK comfort. And the two things can't go together. We're going to have to accept that we are more on the margins, but from the margins we could see a major move of God. Which leads me to this passage where there are just four things that I think the Lord wants to say to us in this moment and for this season. Four things Jesus does that if we emulate these, we might start to make the most of this gospel moment we're living in. And the first is this. Jesus breaks all the rules. Jesus breaks all the rules. Now some of you see that picture and you think, what common sense? Of course I'm not going on the grass. Equally, some of you are built more like me. And you think that regardless of how muddy it is, and you may have new white trainers on, the fact that there's a sign telling you not to go on the grass means you now feel utterly compelled to go on the grass. I think we as a church, we're good at making rules. We're not always good at breaking them. 
I went to Capernaum, which is where Jesus spent a lot of time living with Peter and Peter's mother-in-law. That makes me feel sorry for Jesus. He had to live with a mother-in-law without any of the benefits of being married. That feels like a double loss. But we went to Capernaum. I was really excited. Me and my family, we went there. They all went in. There was a big sign at the door that said, your skirt or your shorts had to be below the knee. Now, it's 40 degrees, so I've got shorts on, and I'm six foot three. Where do you buy shorts from that go below your knee? So my shorts are one inch above the knee. So they won't let me into Capernaum. I was fuming, right? My family have gone in. I've gone back to the car park. I'm fuming. I've come all this way. I must see Capernaum. Then I had a thought. You see, before I worked for the Evangelical Alliance, I used to work for Youth for Christ. So I'm down with the kids. There is something teenage boys do. I've never done it before or since. But they do their whole boxer shorts above their trousers, right? So I went back to the car park and literally I just pulled my shorts down about four inches. I went back to the same guy on the gate of Capernaum. He let me straight in. I walked four steps into Capernaum, pulled my shorts back up and I was done. Friends, we mustn't put up barriers that don't need to be there to stop people getting to Jesus. We mustn't allow our culture to dictate the way we behave all the time. In this passage, Jesus appears to a woman. Now, why is that so significant? It's because of the culture of the day. The testimony of a woman did not count in court in the day of Jesus. And this isn't just a woman. It's a woman who's had seven demons driven out of her. The society said she was worth nothing. The average Pharisee woke up each day and thanked the Lord they weren't born a Gentile, a slave, or a woman. Yet into that context, my Jesus, your Jesus, appears first in his resurrected form to a woman. The first person to give testimony of the resurrection is a woman who in any other culture, cultural moment, her testimony wouldn't count. But when it comes to the gospel, it counts because everyone gets to play. What rules are there in our culture that we need to break in the name of Jesus? Rules that say that the church is done. Rules that say that old and young don't go together. Rules that say that people that don't look different from one another can't be together. The church is the ultimate model of unity in which we break all those rules, model something different, and in the words of Jesus say, come and see. It's time to break the rules we've inherited. But secondly, Jesus is full of surprises. I think people think the church is predictable, you know. I think they think they know what we're about, yet Jesus is full of surprises. Just in this passage, there's four. First one, earlier in John 20, what's the first thing Jesus does when he's resurrected from the dead? He starts folding up dirty washing. Mary and Joseph raised him really well, right? He's resurrected from the dead. He's buried in two sheets. He starts folding one up. At some point, he thinks, hang on, I am the resurrected creator of the cosmos. It's time to crack on because he leaves the second sheet unfolded. It's interesting, isn't it? Out he comes. Bit of a surprise. First thing he does when he's resurrected, fold up the sheets. Second surprise, the incarnation. The fact that God became a person for you and I, that is mind-blowing, isn't it? Third surprise, he's resurrected. Friends, don't get bored of the gospel. I feel like sometimes the church is bored of something the world's not heard. You know, this, this young baby became a man who gave food to the hungry, health to the sick, life to the dead. Died upon a cross, taking every wrong thing upon himself. You've ever done, ever might do, ever could do. That you could be set free from your brokenness. No, life in all its fullness now and life in all its fullness forever. 
They threw him in a grave and three days later the grave was empty because your Jesus, my Jesus, defeated death that we might know life. What a surprise. I pray every day, Lord, make me fresh with your gospel message so I'm infectious to others. Because too often familiarity breeds contempt. He's full of surprises. I never forget going to the garden tomb as well. Because the garden tomb was designed for Joseph of Arimathea, who was littler than Jesus. By the feet, they've dug out a bit to fit Jesus' body in. I don't understand why they did that. Now that I'm middle-aged, I know that any home improvement decisions are a fiscal decision for the long term. Not for three nights with a dead body. Because Jesus doesn't need that grave. Because he defeated death, rose again, and offers life in all its fullness. Fourth surprise. He walks through a wall. How else does he get to the disciples? There's no door open, there's no window smashed, there's no wall smashed. Marvel wouldn't put this in a film, it's too out there, right? Jesus walks through a wall. Surprise, 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 surprise. And the reason I say it is, it's about time we started surprising people more with our mercy, our love, our compassion. It's about time we started surprising people. Even the style of church, you know, going into the pandemic, we were a set menu, but now we're kind of a buffet. There's all kinds of different ways of accessing church. And that's brilliant. But this is a new day where we must surprise people with who we are and what we are. We've done this Talking Jesus research at the EA. And it basically shows that if you have a friend who's a Christian, then you think that Christians are loving, kind, compassionate, and wonderful. If you don't have a friend who's a Christian, you think that Christians are hypocritical, judgmental, homophobic, and nasty. All we've got to do, friends, is make friends. All we've got to do is make friends. And we're starting 3-0 up because they think you're horrible. They meet you. They think, oh, you're actually all right. Surprise, surprise. Happy days. The reason I'm all right is I love Jesus. Bang, off we go. It's not that hard. We need to break some rules. Be full of surprises. Thirdly, he's so compassionate. He's so compassionate. There's this moment. And I wonder to myself, why can't Mary know who Jesus is? You know, I'm supposed to hear the voice of God and I don't see him. So what's going on? Then you dig in a bit and you realise that Mary's facing this way and Jesus is behind her. She's been crying for three days so her eyes were a bit foggy, you know, from really crying. Her eyes were a bit foggy. In addition, she would have had long hair. Her best hair day would be worse than your worst hair day. This was not her best hair day. These are days before L'Oreal, because you're worth it, has been invented. She's been properly grieving. Her hair's sticky and matty and on her face. So she's facing this way, blurry eyes, matted hair. She looks over her shoulder, makes out a male figure, doesn't know who it is. Until he calls her Mary. Almost certainly doesn't call her Mary. Almost certainly he calls her Miriam. Because Miriam is Mary in Aramaic. You see, in this moment, she realizes it's him. But why is the Aramaic significant? We're in Jerusalem. In Jerusalem, everyone spoke Hebrew. Hebrew was the language of the educated. Aramaic was an uneducated language. No one would speak Aramaic in Jerusalem because that would make you look like you were uneducated. But Jesus is the only one who is secure enough in their identity to speak a language that others would belittle. And so that Mary would know in that moment, this truly is Jesus meeting me with the compassion I need in this very moment. It's an incredible image, isn't it? You see, you've heard it said a lot, and it's as true about the days ahead as the days before. We've been through the same storm, but not the same boat. We need to ask the Lord for individualized compassion for each of the people we reach. You see, the only way the church is going to fulfill the Great Commission is every person witnessing. And as we do that, we need to ask the Lord for compassion for those we're working with. 
You see, Jesus himself, when he meets Mary and Martha, that's the best example of individualized compassion, isn't it? Not only have they been through the same thing losing their brother, they've almost got exactly the same DNA. And yet one of them's overwhelmed in their heart, the emotional person. One's overwhelmed in their mind, the practical person. One's full of questions, one's full of tears. Look what Jesus does. With Jesus, with Martha, he answers her questions. With Mary, he just weeps with her. And that's only about 10 verses before he goes outside the tomb and says, Lazarus, come out. I've been in Lazarus' tomb. That's when you realise why he says, Lazarus, come out. There's space for 15 dead people in that tomb. If Jesus just said, come out, all 15 would have walked out at once. It's like a Scooby-Doo moment as all the corpses come to life. It's kind of lucky Lazarus wasn't a common name. Can you imagine if there had been three of them? Not you, sunshine, go back to sleep. Not you, it's that one. (laughs) But the individualised compassion. We need to ask the Lord, give us compassion for the lost. Give us compassion for those who don't know you. Help us treat people with the same compassion you treated Mary with. Help us reach people in a way that they will understand the hope of Jesus. And then that compassion extends because... What often happens is people get one for Jesus and they've come from absolutely nowhere and with an incredibly bad history. We saw that earlier, didn't we? Incredibly bad history, but their future's amazing in Jesus. And so our compassion must extend to not being disappointed when people come from being an axe murderer to being the latest prophet in the church in the UK. Because that's what God does in his sense of humour. He didn't stop riding on donkeys when he got to Jerusalem. He still does that today. He chooses the least and the last and he uses them greatly. If you want evidence of that in scripture, Noah planted his own vineyard and got mashed up on his own wine and yet it got used. Abraham was too old to be used. Jacob was a liar. Rahab was a prostitute. David had an affair and was a murderer. Jonah ran from God. The disciples fell asleep whilst praying. The Samaritan woman was divorced more than once and the aforementioned Lazarus was dead. Yet God used them powerfully. So we're compassionate when reaching people, but then also compassionate about how God will use them. But this compassion as well needs to extend to the family inside the church. One of the worst things about my job is I know most of the mess of the church in the UK. And you know what? Most of it's not that big a deal at first. But something small grows and grows and grows and grows and grows. doesn't get dealt with. People don't say sorry. People don't nip it in the bud. And then suddenly you've got a denomination, a church split in half. We've got to learn to say sorry quicker. I got married 22 years ago this summer. I was four. (laughs) And I remember in my wedding prep, they said to my my wife, Anne and I, always say sorry quickly. Say sorry even when it's not your fault. I am so experienced in this. I am forever saying sorry and it has rarely been my fault. However, not true. Wouldn't it be amazing if, as that advice continued, which was never go to bed on an argument, wouldn't it be amazing if Kensington Temple never went to bed on an argument? Regardless of the argument, regardless of how big and powerfully you feel it, wouldn't it be amazing if, as the family of God, you never went to bed on an argument? Because you knew that sorry was the most important word to preserve your unity here. You see, when people come and see the church, they've got to see something different. So we've got to be compassionate to those outside the church, but within the church, sorry needs to be a more regular word used. Even if it's not your fault, deal with it. Have brother and sister recognition and rehabilitation. We have got to say sorry. Even today, some people can't, you must not go home till you've said sorry to someone. For some of you, that would be the word for today because the compassion needs to be inside the family as well as to those we're trying to reach. So he breaks the rules. He's full of surprises, compassionate. And then finally, he's faithful. (coughs) He's faithful. 
In John 11:16, Thomas says, let us go with you that we might die with you. That's ironic, isn't it? That he says it and he's the deserter. At the same time, we need to go easy on the disciples. According to the late John Stott, the disciples are aged 15 to 22. When Jesus wants to change the world, he starts a youth group. Can you imagine if your teenage years were written down in the most read book in human history? All of a sudden, when you think of it through that lens, you think the disciples did a lot better than we did. But that's a different issue. Nonetheless, Thomas goes wandering and misses out on Jesus visiting the disciples. But Jesus is so faithful, he comes back for him. Even in Thomas's unfaithfulness, Jesus is faithful. In Gethsemane, when Jesus sweats blood as he asks the Father three times to let him not go to the cross, even when he doesn't get the answer he wants, he's faithful. And we have got to be a faithful people because we live in an unfaithful culture, don't we? You'll notice people don't stick with anything anymore. When I was a kid, the most successful shop at the end of the road was the TV repair shop. Now even if your TV is 4K HD, if it breaks, just throw it away. My mum used to have a hanger with zips on. She'd sew a new zip onto your trousers when it broke. No trousers are made well enough now that they haven't all fallen apart before the zip breaks. Some of my friends, two of them running churches, have left their wives in the last 18 months because they're not sure they love them anymore. Both occasions I'm like, mate, I'm not being funny. Love is not a feeling, it's a choice. We've got to get to a point where we are faithful in an unfaithful culture. The number one album in 2022 in the UK was Adele's album of songs written for her three-year-old son so he'll understand when he gets older why the marriage split up because her happiness is the most important thing in her life. That's not true. That can't be the culture we're in. (coughs) The only thing anyone sticks at for life and they don't change is their football team. (laughs) And even then, if they didn't pick AFC Wimbledon, they got that wrong because Jesus supports Wimbledon. He cares about the marginalised, those who've been mistreated, and there's a special place in his heart for those who've been forced to live in exile. Anyway. But you know what we've got to do? We've got to shut the back door of the church, lose none from our number, and be faithful for Jesus the rest of our lives. You want to do one thing, stick with Jesus the rest of your life. Whether good or bad, stick with Jesus. Crack on, keep going forwards, don't move away. Be faithful to the God who's faithful to you. Because in a culture of unfaithfulness, faithfulness to God will shine like a star in the universe. We need to break some rules, be full of surprises, compassionate and faithful. Why in particular? Well, I believe this is our moment. I really do. We have prayed and prayed and prayed for revival. We have believed for breakthrough. I'm not saying we're in revival. I'm just saying the circumstances are there where something amazing could happen. People have been through a pandemic through which the nations experienced mortality salience and awareness of our brokenness. One day we might die. Excess deaths on the news from the UK. We're not used to that. People are asking the questions we've been answering for 30 years when they weren't asking them. This is a new day for witnessing. We start again, we dust ourselves down and we go for it. I mentioned a Talking Jesus research. In 2015, we found that one in five non-Christians wanted to know more about the faith of a Christian. That's amazing, isn't it? However, we did the research again in the middle of last year. It's now one in three. That's unbelievable when you think about it. One in three non-Christians want to know more about the faith of a Christian. That also means the spiritual temperature of openness to our message has almost doubled in seven years. Friends, that doesn't mean they all want to come to church. That doesn't mean they want to become Christians straight away, but it is an openness. We need to get beyond just celebrating decisions. Decisions are great, but we want disciples. 
And some of that disciple work happens earlier. Some of it happens later. But every one of us is a witness or an imposter. So let's be witnesses. And every one of us has a a part to play on our street, in our community, in our workplace, in sharing the hope we have in Jesus. Let me encourage you. It's definitely easier right now. I would talk to a lamppost about Jesus. I'm just built different. I love getting on the tube with one of my mates who's also a Christian in the rush hour. (coughs) We love talking really loudly about Jesus. And if anyone shows any interest, boom, divide and conquer. (laughs) I accept we're unusual. However, even for the likes of me, we're noticing it's easier. This is the time to build those witnessing muscles. I live in northwest London. That means I pay too much for everything. That includes the barbers. I've been to the same barber since I moved down here seven and a half years ago. For the first six years, I got absolutely nowhere, but paying that much, I still had a go at preaching each time I sat in the chair. When I went in after the first lockdown, he says, wow, I'm so pleased to see you. I've never wanted to talk about God so much. Every time I go in, we have another chat. He's not given his life to Jesus yet, but I'd given up on this guy having any interest. When I was in there last, which judging by my hair is about four weeks ago, he said to me, can we talk about judgment day? So we did. Then he says, I don't understand why everyone just doesn't turn to God. I said, well, do you fancy doing that now? He says, oh, I'm not ready just yet, Gav. But there's an openness. Or I was at a funeral and this guy comes towards me and I, I don't often notice the athletic prowess of another man, right? But this guy was hench. He properly worked out. He's incredibly athletic, incredibly sporting guy in his mid-twenties. As he walked towards me, it was like looking in a mirror. <laughs> he came up to me, started having a go. He said, you, what, you and your wife used to do this program on TBN and my mum loved it and my mum's cross with you because you stopped. I said, I'm really sorry, mate. We can't do everything. He says, I'm not sure you've heard. My mum's cross. You need to do some more. I'm sorry, mate, we can't do everything. He said, well, let me tell you something. During the second lockdown, I got so bored that I watched four episodes with my mum. And I gave my life to Jesus. (laughs) Now, friends, let's put this simply. Those shows weren't evangelistic. We couldn't, because of Ofcom, we couldn't do a gospel ask. It's just us talking about a Bible passage. There's something in the culture that's more open than we've ever been. Now is the moment. Let's go for it. Let's not miss it. Let's break some rules. Let's be fearless. Let's be brave and kind. Let's be full of surprises, compassionate and faithful. This is our moment. We've prayed and longed for it. This is our moment. And if you ever need an excuse, if you're slightly nervous, just invite him to J. John. He'll do well. But those people you've invited that have said no before, this is a new season. We're ground zero for our evangelism. We're ground zero for our witnessing. We're ground zero for our hope. Hope should be infused for those we prayed for for years and not seen breakthrough because everyone's more open now.